Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we uh, pray to bless our time together today. Pray you'll uh, maybe give us some insight into some of the things that are going on. Pray that you bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, things are, I chose the title, Undecided, mainly because I couldn't decide on what the title was. <laughs> and, but it sort of does indicate what's going on, uh, particularly here in the United States with our election. And with a lot of things, everything seems to be up in the air. We've talked for many years now about the convergence of events and the things that seem to indicate that the Lord's return is getting closer. And we do live in a disrupted world. And again, I'll remind you that we do put the updates up at uh, Remnant Truth Network, rtntv.org, and there's also an app. Um, we're trying to populate that and administrate that. So um, appreciate your, if you want to give any assistance to that. Nobody makes any money off of it. We just have some expenses that come about because of server space and that type of thing. You know, bandwidth is not uh, complete, and server and storage is not completely uh, free. So, whatever you want. So let's. There are a lot of uh, passages of scripture that I could start out with that to kind of help collect our thoughts, but I thought I would start today with Psalm chapter 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto him in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, S-O-N, lest he be angry and he perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And so that sort of carries on from what I talked about first hour in James chapter 5 about, you know, the Lord is coming, the judge is coming, God's going to come and take care of all of this mess. And until that happens, though, we are to be patient and in prayer. And it's very difficult to do when we see a lot of turmoil going on around us. So I'm going to look a little bit at the election in the United States because the United States is the most, well, maybe not, but it's close to the biggest economy on the earth. And it's also a very powerful military power, and we are in a very 
difficult state of transition. It's difficult to know exactly what's true and what's not, what's not true out there. There are plenty of examples of that. Um, I went through and dug out of some of the Arab newspapers how some of the people in the Arab world are viewing the election and the fact that President Trump has not yet conceded uh, and re refused to recognize that Joe Biden, who has not had his votes all certified yet, is actually the president-elect and he should not be challenging things. But this, these are just some editorial cartoons uh, that I thought were interesting. Um, you see there, the world's trying to put Trump in the trash. Another one, you have both the elephant and the, the donkey kicking Trump out. Uh, here's another one. You can see that he's very much loved around the world. Um, this is Lady Liberty taking out the trash. And then this is uh, another one. So I'm going to apologize up front. I, I preached first hour today, and so I spent a lot of my time preparing this. So I'm, I've tried to make this as coherent as possible. But one of the things we saw last Sunday, of course, Saturday, they had this sort of coronation of Joe Biden as the president-elect. And everybody was, oh, it's over, it's over, I can finally sleep now. Although I read now that, well, because Trump hasn't conceded, the stress levels in America are off the charts. But the theme on these headlines and magazine covers everywhere was, it's a time to heal. Now, <laughs> the, <coughs> the arrogance of that is a bit difficult for me to accept. Because four years ago, nobody was running around saying, we should accept this, you know, we, what did they do? They spent four years trying to undo the last election and now they, it's now the narrative is if anything is done to challenge the election, you're anti-democratic. Look at the cover from the Atlantic magazine, the election that could break America. Now, there are a lot of different allegations floating around about the election. There are a lot of what I consider to be very strange anomalies that have been noted by many people in many states, almost always in the battleground states, that where there were Senate races and presidential races, in a lot of those races, Biden got close to, in some states, 100,000 more votes than the Senate candidate did, even though it's a hotly contested Senate race. And some of these things just don't make sense. There's some suggestion that, uh, that Biden was, uh, the, the, some of these ballots only had uh, Biden-only votes on them. And those might be anywhere from 40 to uh, 80,000 in some of these battleground states, but nowhere else. 
you know, so it's, it seems like there was something going on. Now, last week I played a little bit of a clip from a, uh, it was put up by a, a group called CD Media. I'm going to replay that clip because it showed how votes can be switched in an election. And the example that they use is the 2018 governor race in Kentucky, where the Democratic candidate defeated the Republican candidate by uh, about 5,000 votes. When the Republicans won all of the other state offices by huge margins, two, 300,000 vote margins. This one went to the Democrat. Now, it's possible that people just didn't really like the Republican governor that, that much. That's possible, but we saw this one anomaly. So here's a clip of, they're going to play a clip from CNN News. And I, I'm just doing this to kind of set the context for a clip that I have about this year's election. So this guy was a security expert, software expert, and he went in and he found that, first of all, these computers in about 29 states were connected to the Internet, and they were largely connected to a company in Barcelona, Spain, with servers in Germany. Now, it's my understanding. It's, and the other thing is, you, you hear stories, and you try to confirm them, and the mainstream media is just completely silent on certain issues. So it's my understanding that the military picked up these servers in Germany. This guy went in and he found all kinds of holes. Now, I was just reading an article in Time that the people from Homeland Security and other people in the government are coming out and saying this was the most secure election in our history. And so I feel like I'm this uh, rat in this propaganda test cage where I'm just going to be fed this narrative all the time when the facts and what I see going on is completely different than what I see a large portion of the press doing. And it's even the conservative press. I should have played the clip from Fox News the other day where someone was saying, well, you know, President Trump is going to challenge the election and we think we have... And the host is sitting there scrunching up her face going, wait, 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 we called the election, it's over. Now, you, you called, you gave your opinion, the votes aren't even certified yet. And look, we've had things drag on for a long time in elections in the past, and the world hasn't fallen apart. So, I'm, you know, I'm all for it, but what we see is a propaganda machine going on that's really unlike anything that I've ever seen. So here is this clip analyzing what happened in the 2018 Kentucky race for governor using video from CNN. Now, this is some amazing video um, that you're seeing from CNN election night. And I want to go back and show you a little bit about this clip. First, I want to explain what's happening in this clip. Um, what's happening in this clip is this is the live feed from Clarity Elections coming through the Associated Desk or Decision Desk HQ. So this is the live feed. You're seeing the database that Clarity has as it gets updated with votes, okay? And right now, oh, and this little ribbon at the bottom, this is generated by CNN. 
and they update this a second after they get the update from Clarity up here. So let's just look. Right now, Andy Bashir, who is the guy that upset Matt Bevan, the governor at the time, Andy Bashir has 673,948 votes. That ties to what the ribbon from CNN says. Same thing with Matt Bevan, 662,235. So, 662,235. Now, let me take you through, and, and real quick, I'm going to run it again. You're going to see, if you're watching just this gold, you're going to see a flash update. And then this guy's face fills the page. And then I'm going to show you what you really missed. So here we go. Watch the gold. The update's coming. Boom, there it updates. And now here's this guy. Now let me show you what you missed. We're going to drag this back frame by frame. And so here we are before the update. And now I'm going to start walking you forward. Watch the gold. Here comes the update from Clarity. Boom. There it is. So now the update, Matt Bashir, uh, excuse me, Andy Bashir has 674,508 votes. And look down below, Andy Bashir had 673,948. They haven't had a chance to update the ribbon because this is in split seconds we're looking now. So Andy Bashir has just gained 560 votes. That makes sense. That's what happens as more votes come in, right? Let's look at Matt Bevan. He now has 661, 675. But look down below. He did have 662, 235. At the exact same second that Andy Bashir has gone up 560 votes. Matt Bevan has gone down 560 votes. This is vote switching in the computer. And by the way, between the 560 gain and 560 loss, you have just seen 25% of the loss amount of this race happen in front of your very eyes. Well, certainly that was a one-off, right? That wouldn't happen anywhere else. So I was able, I found this on a website as best as I could do. I verified this. This is from the election this week. It's going to show, it's going to show, be running through some of the states. This is from CNN, and it's going to show some of the states, but I want you to focus on Pennsylvania. So you're going to see a Pennsylvania total and then this thing unfolded over about a minute on CNN. So you'll see a Pennsylvania total. I sort of sped, up, sped it up for the other states and then go back to Pennsylvania where there's an update, updated total. So at the beginning and near the beginning and the end, you'll see Pennsylvania updates. So here you see, you know, Michigan. Now it's going to switch to Pennsylvania. And you see those vote totals. I'll show you those vote totals later. 1690 for Trump. 1252 for Biden. Now they're going to go through these other states, and now they're going to get a Pennsylvania update. You see that Trump went from 1690 to 1,670,000. Biden meant went from a million two seventy-two to a minute or to 
uh, from 1,252,000 to 1,272,000. Here it is again, side by side. So you see the... Okay, this is the CNN guy. You, you can sort of recognize him. And you see the vote total differences. Trump went down during a vote count, and Biden went up. Now, in the Kentucky election, if you remember, the vote total was one for one. It was 560 up for the Democrat and 560 down for the Republican. So I'm sure that, that couldn't happen again. It's not possible, right? Well, here's the math. So Trump went down 19,958 votes. Surprisingly, Biden went up 19,958 votes. Was this vote switching in Pennsylvania? I had, it, it, it was almost comical. I, I would play the clip of it, but I'm afraid you wouldn't believe it. Kelly McInerney, who I think is a great press secretary for the president, she's a little pit bull. And uh, she brought out evidence that they've gathered with the, the Republican national chairwoman. And they showed they had hundreds of affidavits and I, I forget how many thousand incidents of problems that like 2,900 incidents that they documented where they weren't allowed to observe votes. Now I think the Michigan judge has shown out thrown out a lot of those claims already, saying, "Well, you could have come to the training session." This thing. Why were they hiding things behind pizza boxes over windows and stuff if it, there was nothing to hide? Why were they kicking the re Republican observers out? So Kelly McInerney, she puts out all this evidence, and she goes, are there any questions? And I think it was the first person stands up and goes, Kelly, you don't have any evidence, do you? And Kelly was like, I just spent like 25 minutes going through the evidence that we have, whether you like it or not, but you just say that it's not evidence. It's like, it's like we live on two in two completely different worlds. And we can't even agree on basic facts. Now, whether you agree with the affidavits or not, that's not the point. The point is that people swore under penalties of perjury or affirmed under penalties of perjury, that what they were saying was true so it could be submitted to the court. And we have over 200 or more of these affidavits that were submitted just with regard to Michigan, I believe. And it's just, everybody says, well, you don't have any evidence. You don't have any evidence. You don't have any evidence. It's like you're not even looking at it. So I don't even know why we should have this discussion with you. Another anomaly in the election was that in the past, Georgia has had absentee ballots, and those are usually rejected because people aren't there with election officials. They don't fill them out the right way. 
So they would reject somewhere around 3 to 6% of absentee ballots in an average election. This election, they had six times more absentee ballots than ever before, and the rejection rate is now 0.24%. In an election where nobody's ever, you know, most people haven't voted absentee, it's crazy. It's just, it's, it's just absolutely insane. Here is a, a great lady, Sydney Powell, who's interviewed on Lou Dobbs about some of the most recent parts of the investigation and what she's doing as one of Trump's attorneys. Well, joining us tonight is Sidney Powell, a member of President Trump's legal team, General Flynn's uh, defense attorney, a great American and prominent uh, appellate lawyer. Great to have you with us, Sidney. Uh, let's start with Thank Dominion. You, uh, a, a, stra a straight out disavowal of uh, any uh, claim of uh, of fraud against the company, its uh, software or machines. Your reaction? Well, I can hardly wait to put forth all the evidence we have collected on Dominion, starting with the fact it was created to produce altered voting results in Venezuela for Hugo Chavez, and then shipped internationally to manipulate votes for purchase in other countries, including this one. It was funded by money from Venezuela and Cuba, and, and China has a role in it also. So if you want to talk about foreign election interference, we certainly have it now. We have staggering statistical evidence. We have staggering testimony from witnesses, including one who was personally in briefings when all of this was discussed and planned, beginning with Hugo Chavez and how it was designed there, and then saw it happening in this country. As soon as the state shut down on election night and stopped counting, those are the states where the most egregious problems occurred. We also need to look at, and we're beginning to collect evidence on the financial interests of some of the governors and secretaries of state who actually bought into the Dominion systems, surprisingly enough. Hunter Biden type graft to line their own pockets by getting a voting machine in that would either make sure their election was successful or they got money for their family from it. Well, that's straightforward. It may take, uh, you're going to have to be quick to, to go through and to produce that investigation and the results of it. Uh, the, December, uh, the December deadlines are approaching uh, for electors and uh, just as we saw in uh, 2000 with Bush v. Gore. Uh, how critical are those deadlines and how urgent does that make your investigation and discovery? Well, for fraud this serious, I think even if the states are stupid enough to go ahead and certify the votes where we know the machines were operating and producing altered election results, if they're stupid enough to do that, then they will be set aside by the fraud also. I mean, we are talking about hundreds of thousands of votes. President Trump won this election in a landslide. It's going to be irrefutable, and we are patriots are coming forward all every day, all day, faster than we can collect their information with the testimony they're willing to give under oath about how their votes were stolen and how the machines operated. They were updated the night of the election, sometimes after the election. We've got statistical evidence that shows hundreds of thousands of votes being just put in and replicated. It, 
it's going to be there needs to be a massive criminal investigation and it's going to affect millions of voters and elections with these allegations these charges is the FBI already carrying out uh, an investigation of these voting companies uh, where their servers are domiciled and in at least two instances three instances uh, we know they're in foreign countries uh, tell us where the Justice Department is in all of this uh, I wish I knew I'm not on the inside so I'm not privy to that information I know that even Democratic senators and Congress people for years have reported problems with this system to the FBI and to the government and nobody's done a blooming thing about it the people in the election security part of Department of Homeland Security need to be fired yesterday they're absolutely ridiculous. Of course, Chris Ray needs to be fired, too, because the only FBI interview of any witness was to intimidate him and try to get him to change his truthful testimony for hours by an anti-Trump FBI agent. They still have politics infecting the FBI instead of just following the law. We are on the precipice of this is essentially a new American revolution. And anybody who wants this country to remain free needs to step up right now. These are federal felonies. Altering a vote or uh, changing a ballot is a federal felony. People need to come forward now and get on the right side of this issue and report the fraud they know existed in Dominion voting systems because that's what it was created to do. It was its sole original purpose. It has been used all over the world to defy the will of people who wanted freedom. Cindy, at the outset of this broadcast, I said that this is the culmination of what has been a over a four-year effort to overthrow this president, to first deny his candidacy uh, uh, d uh, the uh, election, but then uh, to overthrow his presidency. This looks like the effort to, uh, to carry out an end game in the, in the effort against him. Uh, do you concur? Oh, absolutely. And it's, uh, it's been uh, organized and, and conducted with the help of Silicon Valley people, the, the big tech companies, the social media companies, and even the media companies. And I'm going to release the Kraken. Well, good, because this is, uh, this is, this is an extraordinary and, uh, and such a dangerous moment in our history. Uh, I really am very concerned uh, for the country. Uh, I am very concerned for all Americans. Uh, and I have a feeling that most Democrats are first Americans and not Democrats. They have to be as alarmed as any one of us. Uh, Cindy, we're glad that you are on the, uh, on the, on the charge uh, to straighten out all of this. It is a, a foul mess. Uh, and it is uh, far more sinister than any of us could have imagined, uh, even uh, over the course of the past four years. You get the last word, Sydney. It is indeed a very foul mess. It is farther and wider and deeper than we ever thought, but we are going to go after it, and I am going to expose every one of them. Sydney Powell, thanks for being with us, and thanks for all that you're doing. We appreciate it. A great American. The, uh, well, pray for her safety. Um, you know, look, let it, let it play out in court, okay? But I, I, I'm, not, I'm not an optimist the way I see the courts hunkering down. 
Um, and people on supposedly both sides of the party aisle are, are caving and saying we just need to move on. Um, it was kind of interesting that all last Sunday and, and into this week, the magazines and newspapers everywhere are saying it's a time to heal. That's what Bo Biden said in his speech. And uh, then what was it, Monday or Tuesday, Pfizer came out and said, hey, we got a virus, we got a vaccine. And it's 90% effective. Uh, it is, I've tried to research it. I think it's a modified RNA vaccine that Pfizer's come out with. It's incredibly difficult to distribute. And so don't take anything to say that I'm saying you should take the vaccine. I'm not saying you should take the vaccine or anything like that, okay? I'm just giving you the facts about it. It's a I believe it's a modified RNA vaccine. Uh, Pfizer kind of came out and said, well, you know, this had nothing to do with Trump's Operation Warp Speed. Yet they had press releases on their website that said we're moving forward because of Operation Warp, Warp Speed and the funding that we got. And it's like we're in this, it's like this Orwellian world that we live in where you can't do anything. But it just so happens that they come out right after the election, Biden says a time to heal, and boom, here's a vaccine, they claim, that they say is 90% effective. What does that mean? I don't know what 90% effective means. I used to have a chemistry professor in high school, and he said, when people cite you statistics like that, you should question, what do you mean by that? For example, there was the famous commercial when the that he used, Dove soap is 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent pure. Pure what? <laughs> it's pure. What does that mean? Um, and so we see this, this so of course, this is David Frome, fairly well-known leftist journalist. And he was talking about the Trump rally in D.C. yesterday. What was advertised? So what do you, what is, what's he implying? It's a Nazi rally, right? And I, look, you can say that Trump is a jerk and all these other things and odious and all that. I don't really care. But I think these... I saw Christian Amanpour saying that uh, it's now Kristallnacht, which has happened in Germany when they went through and rounded up all the Jews. And I guess that's what the Trump people are going to do is round up. We're, it's an it's a American version of Kristallnacht because Trump is a Nazi. That's the implication. It's, and I see even Christians saying it, that Trump is a Hitler. I'm like, I, I don't see it. I think that's, you've come to a conclusion and you're, you're stretching it. Like I said, I don't think Trump is particularly the most uh, genteel or uh, the example, of, the greatest example of a gentleman that I've seen. He's not. I mean, that's, I think that's pretty obvious, but he, I don't see the Hitler connection. But, you know, that's... Uh, certainly hidden it. So this is what, and then from put up a picture of the stage area there around in Washington, D.C., and where they were going to be making some speeches at the Trump rally, and there was nobody there. He goes, look at this. 
They promised us this big crowd and we got an empty place. Wait, what did he do? He took the picture early in the morning. It's propaganda. This is what really happened. This is the place where he had, it was completely empty in the morning. And this is what it looked like in the afternoon. Now everybody's arguing about the number. Just like everybody's arguing about the numbers during the inauguration. It's just, we argue about everything. This is the practical effect. Now I've tried to cut the sound down on these. The Trump supporters and the Antifa Black Lives Matter people met up in D.C. and I wanted to watch what happened. These, and it took me like three minutes to pull these clips off and there are hundreds of these, just so you know. So here's a guy walking down the street. Watch what happens to him. Now watch his phone. Here's a caring supporter of Antifa or BLM. I got the phone! Watch this. This is another angle. And this guy was hurt. And they're stomping on his head. So they did... Uh, I mean, this guy was uh, this guy was hurt. Here's another lady walking down the street. She's been hit in the back of the head, so she's walking away. And why? And I can't play the sound because it's all profanity. So a gal walks up to her and says, "Ma'am, I'm a journalist. Can you tell me what happened?" The lady walking next to her. And this is where she says, "I'm a journalist. Can you kind of tell me what happened?" So, okay, ma'am, what happened? Can you tell me what happened? And then she turned around and started yelling, get the F out of here. And people couldn't get into our hotels. This is outside a hotel restaurant in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, last night. This was happening all over the place from what I've heard. I went to a protest wearing a uh, helmet because I'm, I'm just a peaceful protester. But they were blocking people from getting into hotels. Now, we know that the thing about the police, the Minneapolis City Council who had voted, I, I think unanimously, to defund the police, passed a resolution now that uh, to authorize money to go get help from other police department agencies around Minneapolis, like the sheriff and transit and that type of thing, transit departments. And the transit and sheriff's department say, we have people retiring, we don't have enough people to help you. And the Minneapolis City Council going, but, but, but things, you know, things are, 
it's really difficult out here. You know, it, it's very, uh, you know, it, it's just not, it's, it, we, need, we have a crime wave going on. We need help. Well, do you think maybe what you did had anything to do with it? I uh, don't know if I have, I don't think I had time to put it in. So there was a New York Times reporter, and he tweeted, he said, look, here are four stories about election problems. And he said, now listen, just because the story is true does not mean that it's not misinformation to undermine confidence in the election. Okay. AOC said something like that last year. She said, you know, well, you know, we just because it, it's, it's factually right and everything doesn't mean that it's morally right or something like that. I, I don't know. It's just absolute nonsense. So now we have the Minneapolis City Council saying, oh, we just can't do this. And now we also have governors all over um, saying, you know, lock it down, shut everything down, including things in Ohio. Don't have Thanksgiving. Can't have your family over. Um, and the virus numbers, you know, if you could, if they're to be believed, they are up. They are spiking, which was to be expected. Here's a guy from the transition. This is encouraging. He's, um, I can't remember this guy's name. One of his transition officials wrote last year, this is from the New York Post, he wrote an opinion back in October of 2019 in the Washington Post, why America needs a hate speech law. In other words, I believe in free speech, but we need to restrict it. But then it's not free speech, right? So he's trying to adopt the European model. Here's what he said in his article. Let the debate begin. Hate speech has a less violent, but nearly as damaging impact. In another way, it diminishes tolerance. It enables discrimination. Isn't that, by definition, speech that undermines the values that the First Amendment was designed to protect? Fairness, due process, equality before the law? Why shouldn't states experiment with their own version of hate speech statutes to penalize speech that deliberately insults people based on religion, race, ethnicity, and sexual orientation? All speech is not equal. And where truth cannot drive out lies, we must add new guardrails. I'm all for protecting thought that we hate, but not speech that incites hate. This is what they do. They're for freedom of religion, but not the free exercise of religion. So they're for free thought, but you can't say it. And you see all these people running in to put in these restrictions on speech uh, everywhere. Let me see if I can find this article. Hang on a minute. Ah, here it is. So we talked about what's going on in Scotland recently, about how they could even, they want to be able to go into your home to prosecute you for things that you say at your dinner table, because that's, that's hate speech. We have to stop hate speech. Here's what this editorial in the Herald Voices, the Herald in Scotland says, Justice Secretary Humza Yousaf, Speaking outside the Scottish Parliament after the debate on the hate crime and public order bill, um, 
Oh, he, anyway, Yusef came under more fire for his belief that the police should arrest us for incorrect things that we say in our homes, our own homes. Seen as a threat to freedom of speech, it would be more useful, perhaps, to see this as yet another attack upon the family. How would that be? He goes on to explain, if the hate bill passes, it will be a criminal offense to say hateful things in your home, or at least the hateful things that the Scottish government deems to be unacceptable. Additionally, this month, a new law that makes the lightest of smacks a criminal offense will come into force. This comes on the back of the name person legislation that has been quashed by the Supreme Court, but whose intention was to give all children a state guardian from birth to allow the state to monitor the well-being of every child in Scotland. Look further into the recesses of the Scottish Parliament and we find an ongoing review of child protection law and practices that explains the need for change based on, quote, our modern-day understanding of emotional harm, unquote. Here we find a desire to prosecute parents that have not only caused harm, but where there is a risk of harm. The list of potential emotional harms comes from parents who threaten a child, this is a quote, with physical violence or make a child feel worthless, which, which includes appearing to be irritated by a child. This is Scotland. Exposing a child to antisocial role models or advocating bullying or rewarding bigotry or rewarding the child for lying are also potentially prosecutable forms of behavior. It sounds like they're the parents trying to keep the kid from becoming a politician. This list raises all sorts of questions. Are we now to see the threat of a smack, the threat of a smack as a crime too? Will the parent begging the child not to tell the teacher about this threat be seen as a lying child abuser? Will a visit from the antisocial black sheep of the family result in a visit from the social, um, from the social uh, welfare people? Or will laughter at your son's joke about the Celtic or Rangers player be enough to find the rewarding of bigotry police find at your and find police at your front door? With all of this and leaflets being produced to encourage children to tell teacher if their parents smacks them, we find ourselves in a situation that mimics regimes of the past, which similarly tried to challenge, change the culture of society through children by undermining parental authority and destroying the very meaning of privacy. Good thoughts. And we see this happening, too. Here's an example. In the election, Trump got law firms to represent him including a couple based here in Ohio. One of them has now withdrawn. The other has said, we'll, we'll stay in this one case, but we won't file any others. What happened? Well, Porter Wright, based on, I used to work there many, many decades ago, they were inundated. They, they were told on social media, contact Porter Wright, send them messages, inundate their mailboxes, here's how you find out who they are, you guys take A, you take B, you take D, F, whatever, and go through and just harass these people. And so Porter Wright just said they asked to withdraw from representing Trump in the Pennsylvania case. And so this is what, this is cancel culture. And it's going to get worse. There are some people that stand against it. The Federal Society had a virtual conference the other day, and one of their, their keynote speaker was Justice Samuel Alito of the United States Supreme Court. Here's a clip from what he had to say. At what we've seen during the pandemic, 
Over the summer, the Supreme Court received two applications to stay COVID restrictions that blatantly discriminated against houses of worship, one from California, one from Nevada. In both cases, the court allowed the discrimination to stand. The only justification given was that we should defer to the judgment of the governors because they have the responsibility to safeguard the public health. Consider what that deference meant in the Nevada case. After initially closing the state's casinos for a time, the governor opened them up and allowed them to admit 50% admit of their normal occupancy. And since many casinos are enormous, that is a lot of people. And not only did the governor open up the casinos, he made a point of inviting people from all over the country to visit the state. So if you go to Nevada, you can gamble, drink, and attend all sorts of shows. But here's what you can't do. If you want to worship, and you're the 51st person in line, sorry, you are out of luck. Houses of worship are limited to 50 attendees. The size of the building doesn't matter, nor does it matter if you wear a mask and keep more than six feet away from everybody else. And it doesn't matter if the building is carefully sanitized before and after a service. The state's message is this, forget about worship and head for the slot machines or maybe a Cirque du Soleil show. Now, deciding whether to allow this disparate treatment should not have been a very tough call. Take a quick look at the Constitution. You will see the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment, which protects religious liberty. You will not find a craps clause or a blackjack clause or a slot machine clause. Nevada was unable to provide any plausible justification for treating casinos more favorably than houses of worship but the court nevertheless deferred to the governor's judgment, which just so happened to favor the state's biggest industry and the many voters it employs. If what I have said so far does not convince you that religious liberty is in danger of becoming a second-class right, the right to the free exercise of religion is not the only once-cherished freedom that is falling in the estimation of some segments of the population. Support for freedom of speech is also in danger, and COVID rules have restricted speech in unprecedented ways. As I mentioned, attendance at speeches, lectures, conferences, conventions, rallies, and other similar events has been banned or limited. And some of these restrictions are alleged to have included discrimination based on the viewpoint of the speaker. Even before the pandemic, there was growing hostility to the expression of unfashionable views. And that, too, is a surprising development. Here's a marker. In 1972, the comedian George Carlin began to perform a routine called The Seven Words You Can't Say on TV. Today, you can see shows on your TV screen in which the dialogue appears at time to consist almost entirely of those words. Carlin's list seems like a quaint relic. But it would be easy to put together a new list called Things you can't say if you're a student or professor at a college or university or an employee of many big corporations. And there wouldn't be just seven items on that list. Seventy times seven would be closer to the mark. I won't go down the list, but I'll mention one that I've discussed in a published opinion. You can't say that marriage is a union between one man and one woman. Until very recently, that's what the vast majority of Americans thought. Now it's considered bigotry. 
that this would happen after our decision in Obergefell should not have come as a surprise. Yes, the opinion of the court included words meant to calm the fears of those who cling to traditional views on marriage. But I could see, and so did the other justices in dissent, where the decision would lead. I wrote the following. I assume that those who cling to old beliefs will be able, able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes. But if they repeat those views in public, they will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. That is just what is coming to pass. One of the great challenges for the Supreme Court going forward will be to protect freedom of speech. Oh, let me finish that. So that freedom is falling out of favor in some circles. We need to do whatever we can to prevent it from becoming a second-tier constitutional right. Well, that's, I'm very glad that he's there. But you see what's happening, that now you can't even support one party in a court case because your other partners will, they don't, they don't want the business. Which, you know, somebody would say that that's actually a good thing, less lawyers, that's, that's probably something we can all get on board with. But there are some grievances that need to be aired, and so now there is a concerted effort, cancel culture. They're making lists. I talked about the Trump Accountability Project last week. What are they going to do with those lists? What, what do totalitarians do with any list? But the guy who doesn't make the list is the Nazi. It's, it's an upside-down world. The elections have consequences. Let's look briefly at the Middle East. I'm going to keep this brief. Um, U.S. electoral chaos, this is from the Jerusalem Post the other day, equals Mideast chaos. Because a lot of people are like, what, what's going? You know, there's reports now that are coming out that Israel, Iran's bragging, and it seems to be confirmed that Iran was able to engage in some cyber attacks on Israel. And everybody's like, what's going to happen? What's Biden going to do? Well, we know what Biden's going to do. All we have to do is look at an interview that his vice presidential candidate uh, companion gave who I think will be president in fairly short order, Kamala Harris. She gave an interview to the Arab American News, which is based in Dearborn, Michigan, commonly called these days as Dearbornistan. And she said, Arab voters in Dearborn have told that foreign policy issues are important, particularly Israel and Palestinian conflict, Syria, the war in Yemen and others. What can a Biden presidency mean for lasting peace and demands for human rights in the Mideast region? Could we send it, continued U.S. military engagements in the region? She starts off by saying, you know, look, we're committed to the Arab people. Joe, I also believe in the worth and value of every Palestinian and every Israeli. And we'll work to ensure that Palestinians and Israelis enjoy equal measures of freedom, security, prosperity, democracy. We are committed to a two-state solution, and we will oppose any unilateral steps that undermine that goal. We will also oppose annexation and settlement expansion. That's directed solely at Israel, of course. And we will take immediate steps to restore economic and humanitarian assistance to the Palestinian people. So in other words, we're going to undo everything that Trump said. At the same time that this is going on, this is a 
picture of the northern borders of Israel, uh, between Israel and Lebanon and Israel and Syria, and the Golan Heights, and you see the um, this area here, the this is the Golan Heights, and you can travel up that area. Uh, there was a report that came out from a group called ALMA, Research and Education Center, Hezbollah, Southern Syria, deployment of the Southern Command and the Golan File units. And what they do, and you can download the report online, it shows all of these, these yellow flags and dots are Hezbollah outposts, organizations, or funded groups in Syria. Now Hezbollah is based all the way over there in Lebanon. It's not that far away, but it's still, Hezbollah is all over Syria. That's kind of significant. Nasrallah gave a speech the other day in uh, Beirut, or whatever his, wherever his bunker is, and he just essentially said, look, glad Trump is gone, I'm glad Trump is losing, we're here to confront anything, Israel better not try anything, we're ready for them, we're going to take them on. Uh, the U.S. results, the U.S. election results that are disputed, reveals that you know U.S. is a terrible country, it's not a good example of democracy, and we're strong, we're going to be here, we're going to continue to do things that we think are important. Iran was very happy with the election results. This is Javid Zarif, the uh, foreign, minister, foreign, secret foreign Minister of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Trump's gone in 70 days, but will remain here forever. Um, and we're happy for this. Another report, this is kind of goes to the cancel culture. This is from Vanity Fair magazine, talking about what are Trump and what are uh, Jared and Ivanka Kushner going to do. They can't go back to New York. Nobody will have anything to do with them. And there are some indicators that they may move to Israel. Um, that's just kind of an interesting thing. Here's another view. This is an Arab view of Iran, kind of using money that they get from places to burn up the Middle East. One of the questions is, what's, what's the effect that's going to be on the uh, Abraham Accords? There's an article from a week or so ago in the Jerusalem Post questioning Abraham. What, what's going to happen? There's a similar article here with uh, Israel's deal shakes Sudan's fragile transition. You know, Sudan has signed on to the normalization agreement, but it's a very much, it's not accepted by most of the people in Sudan. They don't like it. They don't want it. And so everybody says, well, you know, Sudan, that, that sort of means Ezekiel 38 couldn't happen because Sudan's part of that coalition that comes against Israel. And, but they've normalized relations, but it's a very fragile thing, I guess is the point that I'm trying to make. And then, of course, there's the Palestinian and the challenge of normalization. So in questioning Abraham, it says, last week Sudan agreed to the normalization of relations with Israel in exchange for its removal from the list of state sponsors of terrorism, joined Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, and a growing chorus of nations that have seemingly put an end to decades of Arab-Israeli conflict. The Trump and Netanyahu administrations have heralded these achievements as byproducts of their diplomatic efforts, in the pres and President Trump has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. 
Although the Abraham Accords are encouraging and historically significant, they are more a byproduct of tectonic changes that have transformed the region over decades than the result of the diplomatic work of the parties involved. So in other words, Trump really didn't have anything to do with it. And to some extent, I would agree with this. And so some people have asked me, well, what happens to the Abraham Accords? They're going to go away if Trump is not continued in office, if he doesn't continue as president. And my view is that they may be more likely for more nations to sign on to normalization agreements. Why? Because the U.S. is out of the picture. Because first of all, the first thing Biden says after the Equality Act to get rid of a lot of religious freedoms in America, he's going to go back to the Iran nuclear deal. The reason why countries are normalizing relationships with Israel is relations with Israel is because they're concerned about Iran and now Turkey. Well, if the United States is effectively out of the picture under a Biden administration, oh boy, I don't know. I don't really like saying that. <clears throat> but let's just, you know, play the worst case scenario and say that it does turn to be a Biden administration. The the concerns about Iran and Turkey are only going to be heightened, which I think will drive the countries to really normalize relations with Israel. Mohammed bin, uh, not Mohammed bin Salman, but King Salman in Saudi Arabia this week gave a speech and said, Iran is a horrible threat. It's a terrible threat. We've got to deal with Iran. Well, if the United States is pulling back and actually supporting Iran, I think Saudis are going to be more likely to normalize things with Israel. And I do think that that has prophetic consequences, far beyond the time that I have here. Um, let me see here. Okay, so I have a couple things. So Turkey continues to rise in influence. You need to watch this. Uh, Erdogan continues to try to recreate the Ottoman Empire. Um, He's essentially started what you would almost call a jihad on Europe. Um, let's see, that's not the one I wanted. Well, it's it's going to be a problem. I mean, Tur Turkey is an issue, and this that you can find this all over Turkey's social media, how they're doing it. And, and Erdogan says he has a mission. Now he had kind of a there's a hiccup this week. The economy is very bad in Turkey, and the head of the Turkish Central Bank was, I don't know if he quit or got fired. He happened to be, just happened to be Erdogan's son-in-law. So that's caused a bit of turmoil internally in Turkey. People are upset about the economy, but um, it's, it, it's a very interesting world. So last week, the UN put in place uh, their annual anti-Israel resolutions. And it was interesting, these resolutions. For example, one of them was uh, 75L14. And what they said, they, you know, we're deeply regretting the 53 years have passed since the onset of Israeli occupation, stressing the urgent need. These were all adopted by large majorities in the UN General Assembly. There were about seven of them, including the countries that have normalized relations with Israel like in Arab United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, voted for these resolutions, which are anti-Israel. But they've normalized relations 
what that tells me is you better be careful about trusting them because they might be conspiring in the back. Here's another thing. Gravely concerned by the tensions and violence in the recent period throughout the occupied Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem, and including with regard to the holy places of Jerusalem, including Haram al-Sharif, and deploring the loss of innocent human life. Well, that's not, that's the Temple Mount, but that is now considered, I guess, to be exclusive Arab territory. Uh, Gatestone has a good article that Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount does not belong to just the Palestinians. In fact, the Palestinians have been harassing people from the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain who've come to visit the Temple Mount. And there's a lot of uh, things in Arab social media about, hey, you, you know, you guys, you don't own the Temple Mount. Um, you need to you need to respect the fact this is a religious site for all Muslims. But now the question is, is it really a religious site from, for all Muslims? Here's an article from Arud Shiva, Free Al-Aqsa from the Palestinian Brats. And so we have this Al-Aqsa Mosque, this mosque right here. Okay, here's the Dome of the Rock. And when we were there in 1995, we actually could go inside both of those. And inside the Quran, and actually inside the Dome of Rock, very interesting. I'll have to do an update where I include more on this. But in the Dome of the Rock are the oldest existing writings from uh, the Quran on the planet. Because they, they etched them in the wall up there when they built this in around 692 A.D. Islam was still in its infancy, relative infancy then. So the oldest copies of what it says in the Quran are in that Dome of the Rock, parts of it. And one of them is a panel that says, and I've seen it with my own eyes, God has no son. So there on the Temple Mount is an abomination against the God of the Bible. And it's etched in stone. So anyway, so Al-Aqsa Mosque, this is very interesting. About 12 years ago, there was a documentary about Al-Aqsa. Is this really the site of Al-Aqsa? Because everybody just accepts that to be the case, correct? So Dr. Mordecai Kadar uh, participated in this documentary. Here is uh, a few-minute clip from that documentary about is Al-Aqsa really on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? Now, that's what you hear from all the media today. That's what the UN just voted for, but what's the truth? So look at this little clip. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala qad qarrara fi kitabihi anna al-Quds juz'un min al-Aqeel al-Islamiyah juz'un min al-Quran al-Kareem al-Ladhi nata'abbadu Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bih wa qad qarrara al-Quran al-Kareem qabla al-UNESCO wa qabla al-Shu'ub ukhra أن المسجد الأقصى هو مسجد للمسلمين مسجد للمسلمين وحدهم لقوله تعالى سبحان الذي أسرى بعبده ليلا من المسجد الحرام إلى المسجد الأقصى الذي باركنا حوله You know the problem of the Al-Aqsa Mosque that you have is so many stories about its history 
one of the histories that I heard about the Al-Aqsa Mosque, that Al-Aqsa Mosque is not never ever been created in Jerusalem. It is somewhere in Saudi Arabia. Jerusalem is the site in which Muhammad had his nocturnal flight on his legendary mare. Once in a while he was going to Taif. It's a city in the Arab Peninsula to the east from Mecca. When he was walking to Taif, the way was two days walk. He used to spend the night in a village named Jairana. And in the morning when he woke up, he used to pray in one of two mosques which were near Jairana. One was closer to the village and it was named the Closer Mosque, Al-Masjid Al-Adna. And the other one was further from the mosque and it was called the Further Mosque, Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. One morning he woke up in Mecca with a new revelation which is stated in the Quran in chapter 17 which says uh, glory to Allah who took his servant at night from the holy mosque which is Mecca to the further mosque which is near Jerusalem. His companions understood it very well because they know exactly what the further mosque is. All is legends of course a nocturnal flight, a miraculous mare, Gabriel bringing him, all that is stories. The Muslims take this as historical fact Whereas the big stones, the finds and everything is meaningless to them. The Prophet died in 632. 50 years later, there was a rebellion against the government which was in Damascus already by the Umayyads. Because of various reasons, they did not let the people from Damascus area come to pilgrimage, to Hajj, to Mecca. So the Caliph Yazid collected his ulama, means the wise people, what to do with this? Because the Hajj is an obligatory mission to go every year, we have to do it. So he came with an idea. Let's take Jerusalem as an alternative place for pilgrimage. So they tell him, hey, but Jerusalem is not mentioned in the Quran. And Jerusalem is not mentioned in the Quran. How can we convince the people to come to Hajj to Jerusalem? So he said, you remember this verse in the Quran? Glory to Allah who took his servant from the holy mosque to the further mosque, Al-Aqsa. Let's tell the people but Al-Aqsa is in Jerusalem. Well, uh, so you see what it was, it was a story that was made up because of other things. And in fact, here's an article that appeared in a, a uh, Saudi Arabian newspaper, Al-Qaz, this week. An article written by a um, Saudi Arabian lawyer, and he says essentially the same thing. That the story about Al-Aqsa was made up. And so all this stuff about it, it's just kind of interesting that at this time all this thing is coming to the forefront again I think it's kind of significant and what he says here is that he um, I think it's um, a rushing mighty wind uh, the uh, I thought the roof was going there for a moment so anyway, so I'm going to finish up here real quick so we can get out of here before all the trees come blowing down. But uh, so he says, you know, look, um, he goes through the history of this. You can look it up online. And it says, Jerusalem is not Al-Aqsa, as it was not with this name during the mission of the messenger of God, Muhammad. May God bless him and grant him peace. Nor during the era of the rightly guided caliphs. Jerusalem is also a city and the Al-Aqsa Mosque is a mosque. But note that the first Qibla has nothing to do with the Al-Aqsa Mosque, just as there are no consensus about the first Qibla, there are two opinions regarding the first Qibla. And so he concludes with this, the lesson we learned from this, 
this difference between narrators and narrators is due to political matters that have been employed for the benefit of events or issues and political positions that have nothing to do with faith or the interest of rituals. So that's kind of an interesting, and you know, if there's going to be a temple built on that temple mount, and by the way, I think that's where it's going to be built. I know the alternate theories. Randy Price really recently did a talk. You can find it online. I, he might have done it for Prophecy Watchers. An excellent review of the history and archaeological evidence supporting that as the Temple Mount. And I can talk more about that in the future. We really don't have time to get into it today. But I believe that the Temple Mount uh, in Jerusalem is that. Not 600 yards, 200 yards south of this. It's actually, this is the Temple Mount. They say, well, this was a fort, and the evidence is that Romans never built a fort of that size for their garrisons until 200 years after the temple was destroyed. So that's kind of a, a big problem. So let me just, one more story, and then we'll go. Uh, this story appeared in the New York Times the other day. The um, If you hear something in the back around, that's about 60, 70 mile an hour winds blowing rain against the building. Um, Pam, you want to bring the car around? <laughs> get, the, get the big umbrella. <laughs> the, uh, I'll pay for that one. So this is, uh, Al-Qaeda's number two was assassinated in August in Iran, killed by an uh, Israeli team. I'm often amazed at the brashness of what they will do. Uh, and it's also interesting, while the Al-Qaeda number two was killed in August, there are also reports circulating that the number one guy in Al-Qaeda might uh, have died in the last month or so. That's not, they don't really confirm that, but that there, there are plenty of reports circulating that this is in fact the case. So, it look, so look at this. So Al-Qaeda is Sunni, Iran is Shia, and of course they, they don't get along at all, do they? Or do they? So you see Turkey kind of joining into alliance. It's Sunni joining into alliance with Iran. And Turkey trying to get all the Stan republics to join in their alliance, which I think is significant prophetically. But here's the Al-Qaeda Sunni guy in Tehran. And so he's gone. And if the number one guy has passed away, the number three guy is now in charge. And he is in Iran also. So it's just kind of interesting. Here are some reports from headlines this morning about uh, Al-Qaeda in crisis after number two killed in Tehran, which would probably be the case, especially if number one was also gone. Let me see here. Now, this is a report. We'll talk about this in the future. Pope John Paul II was canonized as a saint. Not too long after his death, they really rushed it through. Now this report came out from the Vatican this week about Cardinal McCarrick, who was sexually abusing people, and how he got transferred all over the Catholic Church, even into the Vatican. And it's pretty negative towards John Paul II. And so there's sort of a crisis in the Catholic Church about, hey, the saintly John Paul II may have let McCarrick get away with uh, some pretty awful stuff. So, and then this report, there's this kind of war going on between 
Turkey and France over Islamic Jihad and this type of thing. And here's a report that was issued. It's a several hundred page report issued uh, by the Senate in France saying, uh, you know, Macron just come out and said, hey, we need to have a French version of Islam. Well, that's just driving the jihadists crazy. And now he comes out and he says, look, um, this, this report says you can't do that. You don't understand what Islam is. It's an excellent report. So there are a lot of things going on. Uh, the world is in a great bit of turmoil. And I also just got to notice that we're sort of losing our battery backup. <laughs> and uh, so maybe it's time to quit. So let's pray. Uh, I'll have some other things to cover about the Palestinians and an interview with Dr. Kadar that I think is uh, pretty important. So I was going to play that last week. I was going to play it this week. We'll get to it next week because the situation is not going to get resolved in the next week anyway. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We pray that you would um, uh, keep us safe in the bad weather today. Pray that you'll watch over us. Pray that you will give us opportunities to share the gospel with those around us in a time where the world is in great turmoil and that we would live as holy people of God, always expecting the Lord's return. Bless us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.